sorry you thought it was gone but if you don't have little ones or have been living maybe intentionally under a rock hiding from the internet you may not know that that song was from an animated video the all-time most viewed video on youtube from the year 2020 the same year that more children under age eight watched internet video than television think about that this just a little of the context that set the scene for the ideas I'm talking about with my guest in this episode. Sometimes a book comes around that feels like it should be prescribed reading. This one, if I was the information doctor administering my treatment, would be for parents of kids pre-K through 12th grade. That's a big span. I would prescribe it to educators as well, particularly if your field is not tech-driven, and even if it is. Learning scientists, researchers, I guess it's for everyone, but seriously, parents, you're going to get a ton out of it. If you took one of the country's best researchers around kids and technology, trained by some of the most important developmental psychology and educational researchers there have been, had them do a survey of what parents need to know about the state of research around digital learning at different developmental stages, and then gave them the perfect motivation for distilling this research, their own parenting journey. That product would be technology's child. Meet Katie. Mm -hmm. My name is Katie Davis, and I'm an associate professor at the University of Washington, where I co-direct the Digital Youth Lab. I didn't even mention that every chapter in this book gives recommendations to designers and technologists about how we need to consider what we know as we build and add on to the massive body of educational technology that exists. As a parent, I had moments of aha, moments of validation, and moments of therapy. She does a great job helping us realize that perfect is not our goal. And one size fits all is not a reasonable expectation when matching what's right for your child's digital life. As a practitioner and a technologist, technology's child was the right balance of thought-provoking and practical about both what we know and what we don't yet. This is actually Katie's second time on the show, but it's been some time. I'll drop a link in the show notes for her first appearance. I'm so glad she came back to share the new work. A quick offer before we get started. If you write No Such Thing Podcast, a review, and use your name, I'm going to run a raffle in the next few weeks. The person chosen will get free ad space on not one, but two upcoming episodes. Maybe you have a new book or some research you want to make people aware of, an event upcoming that's relevant to our show, or you're looking for participants in an upcoming program. New York, New Jersey educators, here's one now. Amazing opportunity, April 14th and 15th. If you are in the New York area, you have an opportunity to join an amazing day of creative STEAM learning adventures. It's the Invent to Learn New York City, New Jersey with Microbit workshops. Sylvia Martinez and Gary Steger will be here training educators on the marriage of microbit and block-based make code software that makes an amazing array of projects possible for learners of all ages. If you register for the Jersey City Workshop Friday, April 14th, or the New York City Workshop Saturday, April 15th, and use the code no such thing, you will get 10% off. Again, code no such thing, you'll get 10% off. Details in the show notes for this episode. Let's help each other. Again, head to your platform of choice. Apple is my preferred because it's our biggest referrer. And I'll choose from reviews posted on or after March of 2023. This raffle ends May 1st. Don't miss out. This is No Such Thing. 
a podcast about learning in the digital age. I'm Mark Lesser. Awesome. Katie, welcome. I'm so glad we're getting to do this finally. Yes. Thank you so much for having me. Congratulations on the new book. Um, and mine, my markup copy is has um, many, many notes. Not There's no way I'm going to get to all of them today, but I really <laughs> loved reading it. Um, and where I was hoping to start was just because it's a figure in the book that comes up a lot, I was hoping you would tell me about your son. Oh, sure. Absolutely. I love talking about my son. Um, so yes, Oliver um, makes a very strong appearance in the first few chapters when I focus on early childhood. So Oliver is six now, but um, he was, I guess, two when I started writing the book. And I was around him a lot while writing because it fell on the pandemic. And so it was really interesting for me to be able to write about early childhood and watch this little child actually embody it. But um, but yeah, so Oliver himself, I mean, right now at age six, he's in kindergarten. On any given day, he wants to be a paleontologist, a chef, a dancer, an astronaut, an engineer, kind of changes. And he hopes to be these things. Um, but yeah, as I said, he went through a bunch of different developmental stages while I was writing the book. So he was learning to speak. He learned to ride a bike. He's learning to swim. He's now also learning to read and write. His The way he was playing changed a lot, which I thought was really fascinating. And um, I have a chapter that focuses on play, both in digital and analog form. And so it was really amazing to watch him his play become more imaginative and uh, involved. Yeah. So yeah, it was, uh, that's Oliver. <laughs> and it's uh, so cool that what I love about the book is that it's something, uh, it's a really unique confluence between your work life as a researcher and your parent life. Uh, and so Tell me a little bit about the lab and just the work leading up to this book that you had been doing for a very long time. This isn't, um, you're not somebody who comes at this and decides like, oh, suddenly I'm a parent and I'm going to start doing research. This is something you've been uh, working toward for a very long time, but it's just kind of a beautiful combination of who you are professionally and who you are personally. So tell us a little bit about the lab and what you're up to at, at uh, UW. Yeah, so at the University of Washington, where I've been for over 10 years now, we have a lab. It's called the Digital Youth Lab, and we are a bunch of faculty and PhD students who are studying the role of new and emerging technologies in the lives of kids, from little kids, toddlers, all the way up to 20-somethings. And we're really interested in how are today's technologies and also tomorrow's technologies reshaping the way development and learning happens for the better and sometimes not so much. And so uh, we have many different questions that we're asking. We often will um, not just ask empirical questions about what is the effect, but we also want to know, okay, now that we know some effects that are going on out there in the world, could we imagine better designs for technology? And so we're very focused on the design of technology and making it better for young people. Yeah. And that was one of the things I really loved about the book is that you, you're speaking both to, I would say, um, well, you tell me when you, as you were writing, tell me about the audience that you had in mind and did it shift at all along the way? Yeah. So when I was writing the book, I mean, honestly, the, the big motivation for writing this book and who I initially wrote it for was myself. <laughs> so um, I kept getting, you know, I've been in this space researching kids and technology for nearly 20 years now. And throughout that time, I've been getting the same question in various forms. But basically, people come up to me and say, okay, so what's the verdict? Is technology good or is it bad yeah. for my kid? And as a researcher, you know, I always defaulted to the answer, well, it's complicated. And, I, and for a long time, I thought that's that's good enough. But then I became a parent myself. And I thought, well, 
it's complicated is not really going to help me make concrete parenting decisions. And so I thought, as a parent and a researcher, can I write something that will take all of that complicated research and and put it in a form that parents can use to make actionable decisions? So really, as I started to write it, I realized I was definitely writing this for parents. Um, but I think there are concrete ideas here that different audiences like teachers can apply, um, policymakers who are trying to figure out what sort of government regulation should there be for technologies. Tech designers, I'm hoping, will pick it up. Um, and researchers as well. I think researchers, yes, we like complexity and um, you know, we lean into that a lot, but I think we also like to be able to have it packaged for us in a way that is understandable. So that's what I was trying to do with this book. Hmm. And I think it's so it's a such a unique perspective for to write from because I have not, you know, I often hear from researchers who uh, maybe their parents, but are not necessarily writing from a a place where they're actually going through it in the moment that they're they're writing about it. Um, so it was it it hit me. It resonated on several levels for me, and I I was really excited uh, to get some of that personal story in what otherwise is a, a review of a lot of research. Um, there are I think there were like seventy five pages of. <laughs> um, of citations in here, which I want to, I want to ask you about toward the, uh, toward the end here. So, um, before I do, so there's a quote in the book where you say childhood is relatively new. And I don't think that's a perspective that a lot of people, uh, bring into their parenting these days. Tell me what you mean by that. Yeah, so the the idea that childhood and our, I should say, our modern conception of childhood is new, this came to me, or I realized this, actually, when I was in college, and I, I took a bunch of art history courses in college. And when you look at family portraits of 15th, 16th, 17th century, the kids are always just these little miniature adults. And sometimes they're even as lined as the adults, you know, and they're wearing the same sort of um, uh, attire as adults. Mm -hmm. And it's it, it shows you, it gives you a little glimpse into how a few hundred years ago, people saw children as just miniature adults. They were just like adults, but just smaller. Mm -hmm. And our view, of childhood and the the field of child development itself is not very old. It's only about a hundred years old. And since we developed this field of child development, we've really come to appreciate that childhood is actually qualitatively different. And the way children at age two and three think about and make sense of their world is qualitatively different from a 13 and a 14 year old. And that in turn is qualitatively different from a 24 or a 25 year old. And so in that sense, our understanding of childhood is quite a new one. And then just the way we go about parenting and thinking about children is quite new. So, you know, because of the medical breakthroughs like vaccines and public health initiatives um, post-industrialization, you know, children the, and our view of children, it has shifted somewhat from, okay, we just have to get these kids to survive to adulthood to, okay, well, they're pretty likely to survive. So how can we actually get them to thrive? Mm. And this coincides with the introduction of child labor laws in the early 20th century, mandatory schooling. You know, we think mandatory schooling has been around for ages, but it's really only about 100 years old, um, where kids, you know, had this carved out space to be children and to learn and, you know, do things that are very different from adults. It used to be that the lives of adults and children weren't so different. So yeah, in, in that sense, childhood is quite different um, today than it was a hundred and plus years ago. Yeah. It's such an important perspective. It made me think a lot about the 
difference. It's it's childhood now, or I'll use air quotes, childhood is almost a lifetime compared with, uh, you know, a couple of hundred years ago, not that long ago. Oh, absolutely. It absolutely is. And it, and it keeps, you know, there's lots of sociologists have um, remarked on this, that childhood and adolescence keeps getting pushed out, extended and extended. Mm. Um, and so, you know, the, our, the, the time at which we make the important life transitions often is delayed further and further these days. And so, yeah, it's, it, it expands and extends childhood. And um, as a result, we're very focused on raising kids. And as a parent, that comes with a lot of pressure and a lot of guilt. I mean, the, the term parenting as a verb is really only a few decades old. It used to just be you were a parent, but the actual idea of an active thing that you do, a verb that you do, mm. parenting is quite new. And a set of skills. Um, it's pretty fascinating. And I feel like that in and of itself is, uh, presents all kinds of challenges. But then we introduce the digital age and it's dimensions more complex. And um, so I was excited to get into the book a little bit. Um, tell us about the conditions when tech supports child development and those when it impedes it. Sure. So as I mentioned, I cover a lot of ground in this book. I go from toddlers to 20-somethings. And there's, as you've mentioned, there's a lot of citations in the book, a lot of different research. And so I was trying to figure out, is there any through line that joins it all together? And I identified two conditions that I argue need to be met in order for a digital experience to support a child's development, no matter what stage of development they're at. Mm -hmm. So they might be at early childhood learning how to regulate their emotions and their behavior, or they might be a little bit older and um, learning about their friendships and their identity. Um, but the two conditions are, first, it needs to be self-directed. And by self-directed, I mean technology experiences that really place children in the driver's seat of their digital interactions. And so if you if you observe a child or a teen interacting with technology, you're trying to ask yourself, who's in control here? Who's calling the shots? Is it the child or is it the technology? And we can get into, you know, some specifics of what I mean by that in a minute. But the second condition is, is it community supported? Mm. So development, importantly, does not happen in a vacuum. It happens, it's embedded, you know, actually the idea of development is changing the way you participate in your community, your cultural community. So you, you really can't think about development without thinking about community. So you, by community supported in terms of a technology experience, what I'm talking about here is digital experiences that are supported by others. And either that's during the technology experience or surrounding a, a digital experience. So surrounding an experience, perhaps there's a parent who is watching their child as they play an alphabet game on their tablet, perhaps, mm -hmm. and says, okay, well, maybe I can extend the learning here and we can start pointing out things in our house that start with different letters. Um, and in that way, there's there's support surrounding. So often parents and teachers provide that kind of support and often siblings as well. Um, during an, an actual experience, that could be perhaps maybe a teen who is on a platform like Tumblr or Instagram, and they have found a community online um, that is either supporting them or not so much supporting them. Mm -hmm. But whatever it is, it's a community that's shaping their experience on that platform. And so it really comes down to these two conditions, self-directed and community supported. Mm. And when you when you when you highlight those two conditions, all of a sudden, all of that complex 
research starts to make a whole lot more sense and you can kind of put it into those two buckets. Mm. So tell me about some of the some of the experiences for you as a parent where these two buckets in hindsight would have solved a lot. Yeah. Well, luckily I came, I identified them pretty early and it really, I have to say it changed the way I thought about Oliver's technology use. And I, I started to approach his technology use in a much more laid back and confident way. Once I thought, okay, I'm looking out for these two things here. I'm not going to always get it right, but you know, I'm going to do my best. So I'll give you two concrete examples. Um, when Oliver was three and four, he discovered two apps that he really liked. And I discovered that I liked one of them and I didn't like the other one. Hmm. So one of them was Peppa's paint box. And this isn't, you know, it's, it's a typical um, art app where you can draw whatever picture you want there's you can choose the color you can choose how thick your line is going to be it has cute little stamps that are you know they go with the theme of the of peppa pig and um, he loved it and i loved it too and the reason i loved it is because he was in the driver's seat he decided what kind of picture that he wanted to um, create he um he decided how long he wanted to draw. Another thing that I noticed is when he was using this app, we could have engaging conversations. So this app wasn't co-opting his attention to such a degree that he was blocking me out entirely, but he actually wanted to show me things. He sometimes let me add my own little um, stamps if he was in the mood for that. But it was definitely a self-directed experience where he, he was in charge of the pacing, where things were going. He had tons of opportunities to choose. Um, and, you know, I, th I was really happy with that. The other app that I decided that I, I just thought, why don't I like when he plays this app? But it was um, Paw Patrol Rescue Run. And so I love Paw Patrol. I have nothing against Paw Patrol. But, you know, this is a typical game where He's playing Paw Patrol Rescue, uh, Rescue Run, and you know there's a very clear forward momentum. There's pretty much just one direction you can go. Um, there's commentary from the pups that is really kind of pushing you to get on with it. You know the goal is to complete a mission as efficiently as possible by collecting as many pup treats and badges as you can. And when he played that, he was not interested in talking to me because he was totally focused on the game. Um, and it really seemed as though the game was calling the shots. And he was he kept on playing and playing because he wanted more pup treats. He wanted more badges. Mm. And I felt that, you know, maybe a little bit of that is OK. I didn't take it off his tablet, but I'm going to keep my eye on that one. I feel like he's not as self-directed when he's playing that as he is with the more open-ended Peppa's paint box. Um, so yeah, so now when I look for different apps and and even just TV shows, uh, quite frankly, I look to see, you know, can I, is his attention so co-opted that he blocks me out entirely or can we engage in a conversation? Um, is it open-ended? Does it give him opportunities to go at his own pace and to make his own decisions? And that's what I'm really looking out for now when I choose technology experiences for him. Yeah. And so I want to emphasize because I think people love parents. Um, I won't, I won't, I don't want to overgeneralize, but a lot of parents will hear something like that and think, See, that's exactly why I don't let my kid play games, right? Um, and the thing I want to emphasize is how much effort, how many words this book spends describing the many, um, the many, many intersections that are relevant to the choices you make as parents, right? So um, developmentally, you had a lot of, interest in a certain type of agency and a certain type of game 
based on where he was, right? Could those conditions have changed? Like, let's say Oliver's 12 and he's that absorbed in a game where he's, you know, not having outside conversation with you. Um, is the same thing still true? Yeah, no, that's a great question. So, and it, it brings up the point. So I introduce in the book the the concept of a good enough digital parent. Mm-hmm. And we can go into more depth on this in a sec, but the the core idea here is that you're not aiming for perfection here. And and actually it doesn't exist and it's probably not even going to be helpful entirely for your child to be a perfect parent, whatever that is. Um, what you're aiming to do is try out different technologies, observe carefully and closely how your child reacts, and then adjust as a result. Um, I really emphasize in the book that no child is average and no child's experience with a particular technology is going to be completely predictable because mm-hmm. it's going to interact. The, the actual features of the technology are going to interact with the child, the child's individual characteristics and also their surrounding context. And so it's really important to keep that in mind. And when you're thinking about, okay, I'm, I should just ban this kind of, this genre of media entirely because it's not going to be self-directed. It's not, that's not really what I'm saying in the book. I'm saying certainly um, pay attention, be on the lookout and try and encourage more open-ended experiences with, with technology. But, but not all experiences can possibly be like, self-directed to the max. And so when you do find that your child is engaging in some technology experiences where you feel, well, I'm not so sure about this. Maybe I don't know if the balance is quite right there. That's an actual opportunity, a parenting opportunity to have conversations and to encourage your child to reflect on their behavior and how they're experiencing their technology experience and, and to see, well, Maybe maybe a little bit of this is okay, but do we at what point are we spending so much time with this technology that it's starting to feel like it's it's impacting your sense of agency? Hmm. And maybe you use different words, but I do think it's important because this is a struggle, as far as I can tell, that is going to be with us all for a while, is trying to get that balance right. And the earlier you can start those conversations and the earlier you can really grapple with finding that balance with your child, the better, because that's a skill that they're going to need throughout life. Yeah. It felt um, validating in a way to have a researcher and um, who is working from a place of, of being a parent, um, give me more permission to trust my instincts as a parent and decide if something doesn't feel right for your kid, then it probably is a parenting moment and, and is probably not right for your kid. And you probably don't need, um, reams of data to back up the fact that if it doesn't feel right for you as their parent and the person who knows this young person better than anyone, then uh, there's probably something there, which I think is sounds so basic to say out loud, but uh, but felt great to read and and uh, have lots of citations for. Yeah, no, it's absolutely true. It, you're right. It does seem so basic to say, oh, yeah, we know our children best and we have to tune into that. But really, there's a lot of good research that backs this up, showing that the way adults and parents in particular, and teachers, anyone who has this ongoing deep relationship with the child, the way they really support their development is by knowing them and using that knowledge to shape the kind of support that they give. That's the, that's the key here. And so observing and responding, adjusting, all of these things are key to the way we support our children's development. Hmm. So there are periods where 
um, you talk about design that can be not so good for your kids, uh, de- depending on where they are in their in their own uh, journey. When you know where they are developmentally, you. So I want to talk about some of those design elements a little bit. Um, for one, you talk about dark patterns, which I think is such an interesting phrase. And um, explain dark patterns, and maybe in the in the tech that you just described, Oliver using it at a young age. Uh, it sounds like there were some dark patterns in there. Now knowing a little bit more about what that means, but explain dark patterns, and I think that's such a useful phrase for parents whose world is not technology as kind of a flag for them that they'll be able to recognize when they're watching over a shoulder, hopefully. Absolutely. So dark patterns are design features that are intended to keep a person, a child or an adult, engaged on a platform or device as long as possible without regard to their well-being. So Basically, this is all about maximizing the time someone is on the platform because that's going to increase and support the bottom line for the tech company. So there are specific dark patterns and designers know them. So um, things like videos that autoplay, so they go straight from one to the other, which is you know, a hallmark of YouTube videos and TikTok videos, Netflix as well. Um, so it doesn't necessarily need to be the case that a video automatically advances to the next um, episode or the next video, but that's a feature. That's mm-hmm. a dark pattern. Um, the feature of infinite scroll. So it used to be back in the day um, that if you scrolled through your feed and kind of got to the end of the stuff that you had that was posted that day, it would that would be the end. Mm -hmm. But there's now this idea of infinite scroll where you could just scroll through your social media feed, your Twitter feed, your Instagram feed infinitely, Mm -hmm. and you'll just never end. And, And that is a dark pattern because it's getting you to stay on the platform and keep engaged, even if you don't necessarily want to or you weren't intending to. Um, so in terms of, uh, you mentioned the, um, Paw Patrol example. So I would say that, um, virtual rewards can be considered a type of dark pattern, or at least maybe a gray pattern, you know, um, things like, um, the pup treats and the badges, things that just keep you wanting to play just one more time. I want to get to the next level and the next, so I can get more points. Um, there are even, apps where there are virtual characters who will start to cry if you log out and you know the kids say oh i don't want my character to be upset so i have to keep playing Hmm. Um, all of these things even just the way you navigate around um, a platform or a game you know if it's difficult for you to find the home button to find the exit that is a type of dark pattern because it's it's keeping you in. It's kind of getting you lost in the platform so that you can't easily get out. Yeah. So is it safe to say that what you made me think of um, in an analog would be some features in software can feel like the toy at the bottom of a box of really sugary cereal, right? Like... They're like the thing that makes me really, oh man, I love that cereal. Like, and if I collect enough, like, uh, labels, I can send them in and get a, uh, you know, get a toy, get a decoder ring. If something, um, what I took from dark patterns is no matter what stage your kids are in, if something feels like it's intended, uh, to keep your kid hooked or keep the individual hooked, then it's a pretty good signal of what the values that the platform is being built around are, right? And if that's commerce or number of hours on the platform, or um, then it's a pretty good indicator. Does that sound right? Yes, it absolutely does. And And the way that many technology companies are set up, so many particularly social media platforms are set up, is that they make money based on 
um, selling your uh, personal data to advertisers. And so mm-hmm. they need you to stay on there for as long as possible so that they can know more about you. Right. And so hence the dark patterns. And, you know, your analogy to the um, the treat at the bottom of the cereal box makes me think, you know, that's absolutely true. And that specific treat will be a little bit different depending on the developmental stage. So mm. for a child like Oliver, who's five, six, he's going to be motivated to collect more rewards and, you know, to to have more trophies, whereas a teen is going to be motivated probably to get lots of likes and comments and mm. notifications from social media. So the reward may be slightly different and hence the dark patterns are going to be a bit different depending on the technology and who's using it. Right. Uh, they may also not be positive or negative for the same reasons. I hear, I hear you saying. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, the the use of a particular feature and the way it manifests on different sites, it's going to be slightly different depending on the particular culture on that platform. Hmm. And so I'll give you in the book, I contrast two social media sites, Instagram, which everybody is familiar with, Tumblr, which maybe not all of your listeners are familiar with, but um, it is another social media platform that actually has gained in popularity mm-hmm. since Twitter has gone downhill recently. But, you know, all, these two platforms have some of the same features. They're, after all, social media platforms. You have profiles, you post, you like, you repost, things like that. Um, but they have very different sensibilities, very different cultures on them, and then subcultures within them. Hmm. Um, so, for instance, Instagram was um, formed basically at in the beginning. It was a filter app. It really helped you to make your pictures beautiful. And hmm. so right from the very beginning, there was an emphasis on performance and beauty and just appearance. And so really the 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 coin of Instagram is all of these popularity metrics like how many comments you have, how many likes, how many followers. Things are very staged. Filters are really important. On Tumblr in contrast, Tumblr, right from the beginning, was a place where a lot of fans of different subcultures um, gravitated to. A lot of people with marginalized identities. I talk about my sibling, Molly, who discovered Tumblr in their teen years um, to explore their marginalized identity. Um, There's a lot of social justice activists on Tumblr. and I think there, there you have an example of there are some s- features on Tumblr that are different than Instagram. So you have a reblog feature. So that facilitate facilitates remixing of content and importantly, memes. Mm. So memes are widely circulated on Tumblr and, you know, they're used to make social commentary um, and for political dissent. Um, and there's also um, a lot of community support there in the form of Tumblr's corporate commitment to social justice. So when you talk about community supported, there's the actual um, corporate entity of Tumblr has a visible and explicit commitment to social justice. Mm. Um And so, yeah, Tumblr, you have a profile, but it's not profile based. It's not tied to your legal name the way Instagram is, which allows a lot more playfulness in terms of the way identities are expressed. Um, Going back to this concept of a reblog. So if you think of reblogging or replying to someone's um, post, that actually takes a little bit of effort. And so those features emphasize interaction, whereas Mm. just pressing the like button is very quick and that's more reaction. And so again, these small features, they shape the way we come to interact with the platform and in turn, it shapes the, the culture that grows up there. Yeah. 
there are so many directions for conversation that I'd love to follow. And I feel like we're going to need to set up about seven episodes of content <laughs> if, if I want to follow them all. But, but here's what feels really important to parents is that this book, t- tell me if this sounds right to you. This book is not going to tell you your child is X age. Therefore, the following is the right technology for them. It's not going to do that. What it is going to do, however, is give you a set of filters in your own thinking and practice as a parent that help you vet and understand the technology that your kids are living with wherever they are. Does that sound right? Absolutely. Yes. I think of it as it gives you a framework for approaching your parenting decisions. And so this this idea of self-directed and community supported, you can think of it as a tool that, you know, it's part of your parenting arsenal and it's just two steps. So it's a two-step decision tool and it really, it shapes the way, as you mentioned, as a filter, you know, it's a lens for you to make sense of and understand what your child is doing with technology, and then to use that understanding to guide the kind of support that is best for your particular child. Because, you know, I I am ultimately a researcher and it is true that this is complex terrain and there isn't one magic answer here. So, and it is going to depend on your child and their environment and the particular technology they're interacting with but within all of that complexity, it really does come down to these two questions. Is it self-directed? Is it community supported? And if you're focused with those two lenses, it kind of all um, comes into place. It, it all fits into place. And I have found that as a parent myself. There's another, I'll call it a paradigm or set of filters, let's say that come up that I really liked uh, as we're thinking about design um, design of technology and and applying some of those filters as a parent or as an educator, maybe you're a teacher in a classroom and you're trying to decide on, uh, you know, enrichment tools, things that students are doing in free time or after school. Um, you talk about this idea of design layers. So there's feature layer, practice layer, and culture layer. Can you talk about that as one way that I think we need to dive a little deeper into tech design? Absolutely. So yeah, I I really do emphasize that design matters here. And so when I hear people say, oh, social media is bad, Mm. or social media is good, Mm. or they're even when they say, oh, sometimes social media is, is good, it depends on how you use it. Well, that to a certain extent, yes, but it really also depends on how it's been designed and then how that design interacts with the person who's using it. So you really do have to focus on the design here. And so that this first layer that I talk about is the feature layer. So those things like autoplay and infinite scroll and metrics like likes and hearts, all of those things are features that a programmer decided to put into this platform. Mm -hmm. You know, the built-in camera on your phone is a feature. Um, So those, that's the feature that, that actually is going to make certain things possible for you to do and other things you're not going to be able to do. So that feature layer gives rise to the practice layer. And that's where the features and the tech design starts to interact with human motivations and Mm. human goals. And when we're talking about kids, where kids are developmentally. So if you take the built-in camera, um, that allows you to, you know, record. So that is the ability to record something is, is now on the practice layer. So the and another example is features like a hashtag or a search bar that makes things more findable or more visible online. 
And so here, this is where now people are saying, okay, I can find things, I can see things very easily, I can share things by reposting things um, to my feed, um, engaging with others through, uh, if you get alerts on your phones, that allows for engagement, immediate engagement, mm -hmm. and also availability. So these are all of the the possibilities for action, as some researchers call it, that are enabled by the features. Mm. So this is what you can do. And then that very final layer is the culture layer. So what I was speaking about before, contrasting Tumblr and Instagram and how they have quite different cultures on them. Well, that's because some of their features are the same. Some of them are different. But, the, but whatever the features they have, they're interacting with the humans who are coming to those platforms with their specific motivations, and they're creating the cultures. Now, they're not going to create what, certain cultures because of, one, the human aspect of themselves and their particular motivations, but also certain features, the, the presence or absence of certain features is going to nudge you towards one culture and away from another culture. So this, I think, these three layers, the feature, practice, and culture layer, help you to understand and get specific about how important design is and how it interacts with humans and their motivations and their developmental level mm. to give rise to a particular experience. Mm. I think that's so, it's so handy to think about in the context of each of my children and what they're up to with technology right now. So I have a 13 year old who's doing certain things. Um, I have a 10 and an eight year old and all of them are having slightly different experiences. But that idea of these, this interplay between layers is also empowering for, is also empowering for me as a parent because it gives me something to experiment with. And granted, I'm not a, um, this is my work, right? So I'm, I'm coming, I'm, I have a little bit of a cheat code, but um, but it's interesting to think, I'll give you an example of what I mean. Uh, I have worried about my own kids and their sort of heads down time on screens. And for my son, one of the interesting, uh, I'll, I'll say like one of the interesting new feature layer to practice to culture layer kind of interplays that we've started to, I've started to realize there's value in that I think uh, took me a while to figure out is that the share button on most social media is a really powerful parenting tool. Um, and I have been engaged with my son, who's 13, in these really interesting conversations that are hard to have in person because it's hard to get his attention and then make him feel like he wants to be sitting in front of me listening. Um, and so instead, if, for example, I start to share with him some music, it's a really good entree to then starting to share with him um, TikToks of uh, parents talking about um, things that have really helped their relationship with their 13-year-old. And then suddenly there's another feature layer where he's then just using his text messaging to reflect with me back and forth on whether or not this is something that happens between us. And then he'll show me a meme that he found from the internet that kind of captures a joke he wants to make about, you know, a stressful situation we had earlier in the week. So anyway, my point being that these layers are, it's such an important idea, I think, for, for adults to take, I, let me back up. I think it's such an important device for adults and young people who are engaged in developmental relationships um, to kind of take back some of the control and the power that technology can sometimes have over us and get back to figuring out how technology works for what we're trying to achieve, which is, you know, 
positive relationships with our children, um, successful ideation and contribution and all of those things that we want for our kids. And, and so that's a long way of just saying that I think that that one nugget from the book of the feature practice and culture layer um, is really powerful for me at every stage that my kids currently are, which is three different places. So that to me feels like such a, uh, I, I don't know, feedback I wanted to get, I was kind of jumping to give you as I was reading it. Oh, I'm so glad to hear that. No, I think that's absolutely such a great example. And it does, it shows you that yes, the that share button is important. That's a feature, but it's bumping up and it's interacting with where your child is developmentally and their motivations and and you're finding an in through that to share and engage in a sort of communication that maybe he wouldn't feel comfortable engaging in face to face and so it's a that's a great example of that interaction between the technology design and the humans who are interacting with it earlier you talked about this idea of being a good enough parent and I think a lot of uh, I'll have a lot of conversations with friends who think that uh, because this is my work, you know, that um, I am not constantly questioning whether or not I'm doing things right. I want to come back to that concept of good enough because I think it's a really powerful uh, paradigm for parents at all kinds of stages because it's not that. You're a parent for a few years and things get easier with technology. Um, in some ways, it actually changes for the harder. Uh, it gets harder over time as your kids get a little older. Um, come back to good enough for a second. I'm hoping we can just have like a moment of therapy for <laughs> me and help me help me realize that uh, there's not one way to do this and what it means to kind of move forward for you as a parent with that idea of good enough moving forward. It's, it's not that you're saying, take your hands off the wheel, right? No. Mm -hmm. So tell not me what, do, a, what you do mean. Yeah. Yeah. So the concept of a good enough parent, so we'll set aside the digital part for just a moment. So the idea of a good enough parent comes from the mid 20th century pediatrician, Donald Winnicott. And way back then, he actually wasn't even talking about the good enough parent, but rather the good enough mother. Mm. So in my book, I updated it for the 21st century. So we're talking about the good enough parent. But the idea is basically the same, that um, Winnicott was arguing that the goal of parenting is not perfection, but it's being good enough. And the reason for that is if you're always there, if you're always on hand to respond to your child's every Every bid for attention or trying to help get them out of a bind or if trying to help get them unbored if they're feeling bored, you're actually doing them a real disservice because mm. they're not learning any sort of inner resilience. They're not learning how to control their behavior, to regulate their emotions, to solve problems for themselves. And those are critical skills for any human to learn. Mm. And so the concept of good enough is that, yes, of course, you're there, you're attentive, but you also give a wide berth for your child to make mistakes, for you as a parent to make mistakes and learn from them. And that is actually the best kind of parenting. And so when we apply this to the digital realm, you're thinking, okay, so I'm doing my best as a parent to steer my child towards self-directed, community-supported tech experiences. But, you know, I'm busy. I'm tired a lot of the time. I'm not going to, I'm not going to exactly know what these kinds of experiences are until I try out a few different ones or let my child experiment and I observe and then I see what's happening. We have conversations and we both reflect on how these technologies are affecting both of us. And then we pivot and and we we adapt from there. And so that's a key skill of a good enough digital parent is that they're aiming to provide the best support they can 
but they know they're not going to be perfect at this because we don't know what perfection is. Mm. The other key piece of good enough digital parenting is when you turn the tables and focus on parents' technology use. And there's a ton, I don't know about you, but I feel the guilt. And I know that some of my friends, I think probably all of my friends who are parents feel this guilt of having a child complain that you're on your computer too long or you're you're looking at your phone too long. And there's a tremendous amount of guilt around using your own devices around your children. Mm-hmm. And so the good enough digital parent as much as possible, tries not to be distracted too much by their own technologies. And actually, there's research showing that a lot of distraction is not good because, again, that takes away from the back and forth nature of parenting and really being able to tune into your child. But a little bit of distraction, um, you know, occasional glances on your phone or specifically telling your child, you know what, for the next 45 minutes, you need to figure out what you're going to do because I have this work deadline and it's unavoidable. Mm. These things are not going to do damage to your child developmentally. And so a good enough digital parent knows that. Then the third Thing that digital parent, good enough digital parents keep in mind is that, again, coming back to this idea of the tremendous amount of guilt and the tremendous amount of pressure that's placed on parents to figure this out, to make sure that their kids are having the best tech experiences possible, that they're limiting screen time, but also enrolling their kids in coding camps. Um, good enough digital parents know that that all of this pressure that's being placed on families is unreasonable because we did not create these challenges and we shouldn't be the sole ones to fix them. You know, we need more more community invi- involvement. The tech companies need to take some responsibility and government needs to come in and do some regulation. Schools have a role. So it's not all on parents to figure this out. So good enough is actually pretty great in this mm. case. Mm. If I could add one, you just named, you just listed three. Mm-hmm. Um, can I put like an addendum? Absolutely. Uh, I, I wouldn't be so bold as to make it a four, four point list, but, um, but I'll add an addendum just to say that one of the things I think is brilliant about the book is that you're not just talking. I think as parents, we get so focused on what our kids are doing that we forget that we are the first models for our kids in the home, in the car, whatever it is you're doing. So there is a growing body of research on what effect parents' technology has on young people. And so I thought that was brilliant about the book, too, is that it's not just a book that analyzes what research is out there on your kids using technology. It also surfaces some of the ways that... Um, we need to be savvy as parents. Oh, absolutely. And here again, I think as parents, you know, we we have challenges just like our kids do when it comes to technology. And instead of trying to ignore them or push them aside, I think we should really be very candid with our children and about our own challenges and use them as a way to talk through some of these challenges and come up with strategies together. And, you know, what I do with Oliver when I find myself being pulled by my phone or my computer, I I name it and I say, oh, you know what? I've just been totally distracted. I'm so sorry. Let me put that away deliberately and we'll focus on what we were doing together. And so that's a reminder to me that he's watching and he's he's paying attention. Um, but also an acknowledgement for both of us that I also struggle with this and it's okay to struggle with it and we can figure this out together. So we're not going to get there in this conversation, but I do hope we can keep talking. Um, I, I want to tell parents and the middle school, high school teacher, other others uh, who are interested in, in the lives of, of young people that there are two chapters plus, but two specific chapters that are dedicated to tweens and teens in the book. And um, they were so important to me as somebody who is 
there already, but also anticipating the road ahead. So I want to point people to that and make sure that they get into technology's child and um, and get far enough that you can read the chapters on the teen years, whether you have teens yet or not. I think it's really important for all of us to start thinking uh, to your to to the culture layer. What is the kind of family culture you're you're working to build over time uh, as a family, and how can you start to plan for that and make smart decisions about you know rather than just reacting as your kids become teens to every request that they have, figuring out how you start to build some family agreements about how we're gonna. Uh, handle handle questions and challenges and you know like and the hot new thing together. So I I wanted to point people to those two chapters and then ask you. There are seventy five pages of citations in the copy that I read, and so obviously the book is one built to celebrate other great work that's brought us this far. And so I wanted to ask you. Uh, about the juiciest areas of research that you've heard are underway right now that might make an appearance. I'm not going to, you know, I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves, but let's say there was a second edition of the book. What are the areas of research that you have an eye on right now that you think are are really juicy that that folks should keep an eye on? There are a couple of exciting new areas of research right now. One is, I think, researchers who are more and more recognizing the limits of self-report data. So just asking kids or um, asking adults or parents what they're doing with technology, that, you know, that can provide some insight, but it is limited. So researchers, especially in the mobile health area, are trying to look at how we can use um, behavioral data to inform how kids are experiencing and reacting to their digital experiences. So there's a lot that we can learn from the signals we're getting from a child's phone or their smartwatch. And if you combine that with observations and perhaps some self-report data, you start to get a really rich picture of what um, kids are experiencing when they're engaging in a particular technology experience. So I'm really excited about mobile health research right Mm -hmm. now. I'm also really excited about the idea, and this is some work I'm doing with colleagues at the University of Washington. You know, for several years now, and in the book, I call for more emphasis on um, away from engagement metrics. So by that, I mean click-through rates or time on platform indicators that show platforms and tech companies how much time someone is spending on their platform. What if we actually came up with a different set of metrics and they emphasized well-being? And what if those metrics became the default in a system instead of engagement metrics? So instead of having an autoplay be the default, what what sort of metrics could we come up that would um, support someone's well-being? And so we're trying to actually make those come up with those, identify them, and test them. Um, we don't have them yet, but I'm really excited about that work, and I think it's really important because I think we we when we're critiquing the technology companies, we also want to provide an alternative. Um, What could they be doing instead of what they're doing right now? And that's what my colleagues and I are thinking about a lot these days. Whoa, I love that. So the idea being, so one idea that I was having, I don't know, I don't want to try and uh, summarize what you were just saying, but the idea that I was having is that um, if we could, as researchers, you could prove for example, that a filter that allows a parent to turn on a different pattern from a dark pattern to something maybe healthier, like a video ends and it has three activities you could do with the kind of video, like, you know, maybe you look up the animal that was in the video, draw a big, you know, draw a mural of whatever it is. If I could turn that on as a parent, what you're looking at is what would be the effects of some of those design choices on the software that um, 
right now is a little bit of a fire hose that we don't have enough control over and causes a lot of parents to say, like, we're just going to be a tech-free house. Absolutely. And yeah, it's, it, that is exactly right. That's a great example of uh, of a potential well-being metric instead of an engagement metric. Mm. And what if that became the default? You know, right now, it's so much work for parents to do to change the existing defaults, um, not even towards well-being, but just to war- to away from ill-being. <laughs> and so if you disable autoplay, if you filter and block content, it takes a lot of energy. And especially if you have multiple kids, you have to, you know, tailor it for every kid. What if it wasn't so hard? Um, that's what right we're there. trying to explore. Oh, my gosh. When we have more to talk about on that research, will you come back and can we talk some more about that? Absolutely. I would love to. I would love it. Katie Davis is the author of Technology's Child. And um, Katie, I'm so glad we had to have this conversation. It was uh, it was um, some chicken soup for my soul as a parent. <laughs> Um, and also, I'm so glad to hear. And also fascinating for me as somebody who works in this space, I think, uh, and, and designs technology, um, I think it's so important for all of those audiences. So thank you for being here and best of luck with the continued uh, celebration of what I think is a really awesome book. Thank you so much, Mark. I really appreciate it. For more info about advertising with us, sponsoring the show, or if you have story ideas you want to share, find me on Twitter, at M.A. Lesser. The tracks in this podcast were produced by Leroy Tindy, a guest in episode zero, alumni of two bomber nations, Ithaca and the Bronx, New York, and engineer of digital things and fresh beats. Find him on SoundCloud at Air Tindy Beats. No such thing is produced by me, Mark Lesser, a learner like you and our show notes can be found at nosuchthingpodcast.org.